I've been asked many, many times, what on earth did I think I was doing? <laughs> Fortunately, I never gave it much thought because uh, if I had it done, then I would have gotten out quite quickly, I think. I mean, I did not think of myself at that time in any way as being unusual for living there with this project that I was trying to build up. We were very much part of the community in which we were living. That's where I got the nickname, of course, the crazy Englishman. Welcome to Beeline, a podcast brought to you by the Hive Change Consultancy and hosted by its CEO, Andrew Tilling. My name's Gemma Aston, and I'm part of the leadership team at The Hive. Our job is to serve leaders like you who are committed to making a positive impact. I've put together this podcast series and invited some passionate and knowledgeable change makers to help us find the Beeline, the simplest way to bridge the gap between pain points and solutions, and to give you the resources to support your leadership journey. Beeline. Lead the way. This is the first of two very special episodes of Beeline, featuring our esteemed guest, Ian Tilling. Only a month after recording these episodes, Ian was awarded an OBE. Congratulations, Ian, from all of us at The Hive. As leaders looking to affect some kind of positive change, often we're deeply invested in that outcome. We want to see it delivered. We want to make the impact. And in some cases, we just can't afford to fail. So to enter the idea of surrendering control can seem like we're letting go of those reins and we can let that project just, just career off in a direction which could be damaging, could somehow uh, produce less than we hope for. And yet so many people speak to this idea that surrendering control as a leader has a profoundly positive effect on outcome, on performance, and on the ability of the people who we lead to perform at their very best. I mean, that goes right the way from the latest research uh, and the work of Jim Collins, which people know I'm a big fan of, to you know, to quotes by Lao Tzu, to lead people walk beside them. As for the best leaders, the people do not notice their existence. The next best, the people honor and praise. The next people fear, and the next the people hate. When the best leader's work is done, the people say, we did it ourselves. So to try and get our head around this idea of, of surrender and control, I've invited a, a guest today who, well, let's just say I've known for some time. He's a um, social entrepreneur, 32 years experience working with vulnerable groups in Romania, as it happens. He's the founder and president of the Romanian NGO, the Casa Ioana Association, uh, which works to provide temporary accommodation and comprehensive support to women and children confronted with domestic abuse and family homelessness. He's the former president of the European Federation of the National Organizations working with the homeless, that's FIANSA, so a European body that, that works to address homelessness. And he's also a former police officer from the UK. And as it happens, he's also my dad. So it's my great pleasure to invite Ian Tilling to Beeline. Welcome, Dad. Hi, Andrew. Yes, it's good to be with you. So yes, looking forward to this. Yeah, likewise. I mean, we've had a few deeper meaningfuls over the years, so it's kind of nice to, uh, <laughs> to put this one down, as it were. I know, I know quite a lot of your story. Um, and for me, it's been deeply inspiring and uh, motivating to see your work over the years. It's also been quite harrowing and uh, profound. Yeah. It's had a deep impact on on my perception of the world and, and what matters um, to see you kind of go off and address these, these extraordinary challenges in a country that, that was facing significant change back in the uh, late 80s early 90s when you first started out there but I wonder if you could just share that story for our listeners and you know because as leaders looking to create change you know you are someone who's spent a life really focused on that so yeah would you mind just sharing that story a little bit well I'm delighted so I mean, I first went out to Romania in the beginning of 1990, so shortly after the revolution or coup d'etat, depending on your point of view. And it was quite, quite I don't know, quite stupid, I think, was the first word that came to my <laughs> mind to actually borrow a friend's 
van, fill it up full of aid, uh, medicines, baby food, and then uh, jump in the van together with a nurse I'd been working with for many years and just literally drive across Europe with no GPS in those days. It was just paper maps, uh, driving to the former Eastern Bloc and through it and ending up in Bucharest at some unearthly hour in the morning to begin a one-month adventure. Nothing quite prepared me, though, for what we found. So we knew we were going to be working with children with profound disabilities uh, who were being housed or accommodated in these state institutions called home hospitals. Uh, the children we were working with were also known as irrecupables, meaning that there was nothing that could be done for them physically or mentally, which would change their condition. So uh, we met up with some British nurses out of nowhere in Bucharest who invited us to this institution in Platrest, which is a small Roma village in the county of Kalarash in the south of the country. And there we began our work. When I first walked into the, the uh, institution, I mean, the smell of vomit and excrement just was quite overwhelming. And there were screams, uh, there was mutterings. I mean, it was a completely alien world for me. But the room I was allocated uh, had 20 cots, 10 cots on each side. I likened them really to little prison cells because they had these white cots with white vertical bars and the children absolutely lived in their cot. They were never out of their cots. They were cot bound. They were eight to nine years of age, all had pot bellies, all being still being bottle fed uh, with some milk and some grazed uh, maize. I mean, they were naked except for a small piece of cloth, which acted like a nappy, but obviously wasn't absorbent. So they got fed several times a day. Somebody would come around with a bucket uh, full of milk bottles. Each child would be given one. And those who finished their bottles first just leaned over and grabbed another child's bottle from out of their hands and had that one as well. So it was disorderly, to say the least. So. I was just shell-shocked for the first few days. I mean, I just did what I was asked to do and just did it almost like a zombie. I mean, uh, mm. it was just so distressing. But eventually, I sat down with this nurse who was a, uh, was a health visitor back in the UK and said, look, I mean, this is crazy. These kids are going, going nowhere. We have to do something. And I suggested weaning the children because we had actually got baby food over. And the director of the institution absolutely forbid it. And uh, she was a top uh, psych psychiatrist uh, back in her day. And she told us that the reason why they couldn't be fed on solid food was because their brains wouldn't, wouldn't tolerate it. I'm not a psychiatrist, and I thought that a little bit odd even. So I went against her wishes, and we started weaning these children onto solid food. Within a week, the diarrhea had stopped, the vomiting had stopped. They were having another experience, which was eating in a different way to what they were used to. And that change was reflected in how they be, behave with us. I mean, they would come up with smiles. We hadn't seen smiles on these children's faces before. There would be something that they were looking forward to, which was out of the ordinary. I mean, their, their lives had just been purely mundane. So eventually we got each child out of their cot onto the floor, which was by no means an easy task because their world was in the confines of that cot to take them out of that safety and put them mm. somewhere else. It was quite distressing for them. Eventually we managed to get them to interact with each other onto the floor. The other thing that, sh that struck me quite profoundly was when we gave them toys, they just sat there blankly looking at them. And slowly but surely it dawned on me that children just do not instinctively know how to play with toys. They're taught how to play by their parents, by other people who show them toys, mimic what to do with them, and the children learn they can play with these toys. So this is what we did with them, and it worked. 
Eunice was one of the first children we got up onto his feet. He started to walk. And of course, once he was walking, then he wanted to explore the whole world. I mean, he was just a little explorer on two little feet. And once the other children seen him standing up and walking, then they also wanted to do it. We took them outside into the sunshine for the first time in their lives. It was an extraordinary experience. Um, we, we found out eventually what their names were. So uh, we, we wrote their names on a piece of paper and stuck these names above their cots onto the wall. So they were beginning to get an identity. Everything was so extraordinary. I mean, it, it was just amazing what we were able to accomplish as lay people. Um, okay, excepting uh, Pam had the experience of, of being a health visitor. I mean, I had no experience of this at all. And yet that's what we could do with children who were irrecuperable. These kids mm. were now being recovered. So it was an extraordinary experience. Mm. So you're taking control in that situation, right? You've walked on in. You've been, I mean, I, I can only imagine that that shell shock, that that zombie-like state that you talked about. So you're just mm. trying to absorb everything that's going in. But then you, you're making decisions about what you feel is best to deal with that situation. And I imagine then you've got some feedback from people who are quite resistant to that change that you're creating that's there. And I'm also wondering what happened when you when you went away from that space. Can you speak to that for a bit? Yeah, it's um, so Dora was a Romanian carer, for want of a better description, who was responsible for these 20 children. And I'd never seen Dora do anything bar give a child a bottle uh, and change a nappy or try to change this nappy. Uh, there was no affection to us, uh, at all with these children, shown to these children at all. But when she started to see that we were getting smiles from these children and that they were behaving towards us in a way in which they wanted to interact with us, I think then she kind of realized that this tag of irrecuperable just wasn't true. I mean, children responded, and as they responded to us, they responded to her. And she became much more affectionate towards the children, much more interested in their care. And that had a rub-on effect. When, when we took the children outside, she just could not believe the interaction. And uh, I mean, the kids wanted to touch every leaf on every tree. I mean, to be involved on the grass, to, to just feel all these textures and have these experiences that they'd never had in their lives before. And that had a profound effect on Dora. And that went through. I mean, so we were only allowed in, or I was only allowed into this room. The other nurses were allocated other rooms. But when they started to see the results coming, then we were invited to go and see more profoundly, if you can even describe it as that, children. So uh, one was with severe mental ish, health issues, uh, others who were just simply crippled with um, spina bifida. And then with these children, uh, when we were working with them, I can remember one child whose arms were very, very tightly uh, folded into his chest. And uh, I can remember stroking his arms massaging them, I suppose, really, and then actually getting his arms to actually drop down beside his uh, body and just sat there with a big smile on his face. I mean, it was wow. just, just all these <laughs> quite extraordinary things. What we did do, um, before we went to Romania, we were told that the staff were stealing all the things that uh, were brought into these institutions. And we kind of looked at that and reflected on that. And my feeling was that, heck, if these, I mean, these were remote villages in which these institutions were hidden, is the, is the right word there, I think. So they were employed, very few were actually trained, uh, and there they were. And they were as poor as the poor people that we were looking after in these cots. Mm. So we kind of looked at that and thought, okay, what we'll do is we'll share what we have with both the staff and the, the, the institution itself. So we had some lovely toys donated to us and everything else. 
and we started giving toys to the carers who had children at home and it worked to a certain extent um i'm sure not all of it we made in the institution but heck i mean we were bringing aid over whether it was aid for the children specifically or what it didn't matter to us the fact yeah. was that it was it was being spread out there and being used and not being locked up in some strange cupboard somewhere and and just being ignored so we were very happy with that and when we left we hoped that the examples that we had actually provided would be carried on. It was a big uh, leap of faith for us. The further we got out of Romania and drove back, I was very happy for one to be going back to the UK. And hand on heart, I didn't think I was going to be going back again. Although it was, uh, it was an amazing experience, it was also numbing. It was distressing and all these other emotions came into it. But as soon as we entered into Austria and started going back, it was like an, an invisible magnet that had been attached to us, and it had a big pull. And the further we got away from Romania, the harder and the stronger this magnetic pull was to go back. So by the time we did go back, all we wanted to do is just jump in another bed and go back over again. <laughs> uh, not very practical. But we we kept in touch with a Romanian couple who had acted as uh, interpreters and translators uh, for the group. So we knew what was going on. At that stage, I was thinking, uh, coming up to retiring from the, uh, from the police and wondering what I should do in my life. I knew very well indeed that I didn't want to do anything in connection with security. For example, I didn't want to go and join a big corporation or a company and, and manage their security issues for them. I just wanted to do something completely different, but I had no idea what. Mm. But now I was beginning to get an idea of what I might like to do once mm. I retired. That huge pull had profound impact. I mean, I. I think that was the point where I realised that you weren't um, you weren't going to let this one go easy because you you did organise a, a fair amount of aid and support to head back. I imagine that took some organising as well, and but also required an awful lot of support and a lot of other people. How did you how did you rally the troops? How did you get get that all moving? Yes, it was interesting. Um... We had the, the local newspaper, it was the Folkestone Herald, it was called, and already our family had kind of made an impression on our, our town. Uh, Celia was a drama teacher in the town and was very, very successful in, in training children to be, to be on the acting stage as well as giving them confidence and so on. But she and... and uh, Certainly helped me. I mean, I seven years of pro with her training. So, you know, I guess it had yes. some impact. No, exactly. So, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, she was quite connected at uh, actually getting West End's children into the West End and uh, starring in West End plays. So she had a fair amount of uh, local coverage, of course, with hers. And uh, some of my police exploits were covered in the same newspaper and various other activities which the family got himself involved with, including the local theatre. So we were quite well known. So I'd met two two young ladies in this institution called Florentina and Claudia. Florentina was a, a, a beautiful Roma girl with black, bushy hair, but she had had issues with her, her eyes and I suspected her to be almost blind. And another girl, Claudia, was equally as beautiful but very little was behind those eyes. And I wanted to get it back to the UK just for a sort of an assessment to see if there was anything that we could actually do to, to improve her life. And uh, I wanted to bring both these young ladies back to Folkestone. And I had already contacted uh, Dr. Porter from the Ashford Hospital, who was keen to actually do something with both of them. So I went to the local newspaper and asked them if they could help us raise the funds to get these two children over. Um, the hospital was prepared to do everything for free. And we started this campaign and we were very successful. We raised the money. 
Warren Tina and Claudia both appeared on the Breakfast Show, BBC Breakfast Shows. So that gave oh, us great, that, yeah. uh, great calls as well. So it was very well covered. And I wanted to go back and really make an impact, as big an impact as I could, with aid. So I went to the local newspaper and said, I want to start collecting some uh, aid for Romania and I want some volunteers to actually take it over with me to Romania. And they said, oh, yes, that's a very good idea. We can uh, join you on that. Uh, would you mind if we called it Campaign Convoy? So I said, no, absolutely not. Um, and they started building up the, the, the campaign, gave me and the, the team that was working me a lot of publicity. And slowly but surely, phone calls kept coming in from people who were wanting to help. In the end, I think we had 96 vehicles all wanting to go to Romania with all this aid that was being collected. I mean, there were lorries, there were vans, there were flatbeds. I mean, there was no works, right? <laughs> this thing was huge. It was indeed. Buses as well came along and we even had a army ambulance with us as well. So we kind of split the teams up into 10 vehicles, uh, three, three people to each vehicle so we could keep driving and swap over the driving. The army gave us really, really good maps that we could na navigate on. So each of these 10 groups of vehicles, they had a team leader and that team leader was responsible for that group of 10 vehicles. The aid was being sorted in the uh, Shawcliffe barracks and we had lots of volunteers doing that. The local uh, newspaper also wanted to come along with us as well. So they came along and we all kind of, well, I look back on it. I mean, I can't believe it actually happened, but I mean, uh, I do remember <laughs> another story, actually, and that was uh, John and Peter as well, I think, and maybe you were involved in it as well. Then John came up with the idea of having, oh, well, we'll do a database on this. And uh, what do you mean a database? Um, I barely knew what a computer was in those days. And off he went in, uh, in the DOS language, as the coding was in, in those days, made this database. And we had every person... Uh, their names, their details, contact details, which team they were in, where they would be in the convoy. I mean, it was an extraordinary family event, the whole of this thing. So we we were well equipped. We all met at Dover, Dover Docks, and off we went. And somebody had, I, I believe it was Land Rover, actually donated one of their vehicles to the campaign. So we had this fabulous Land Rover vehicle as the lead for the whole of the convoy. And we set off. Actually, it was described as the biggest peacetime convoy ever to have left the UK. So that would kind of give you some sort of idea how big this convoy was. And off we drove. I mean, and it was quite difficult because not everyone drove at the same speed, obviously. And it was a bit, oh, hold on. I mean, it was a great deal of work and effort was, was involved in trying to keep this convoy together. It, but it worked. And we got arrived at the Romanian border. They knew we were coming, obviously. And then the, the army turned up along with a helicopter, accompanying us all the way to, to Bucharest via Brashoff, where half the convoy stayed and the other half went to, Bra uh, to Bucharest with this helicopter buzzing over the top. Wow. That, that was an interesting event. But uh, <laughs> so um, we actually assisted, I think it was 16 different institutions throughout the country with this aid. I remember when we were leaving, we all arrived to pick up our vehicles and then to, to start driving back to Brashoff, meet the others to go back. And they'd put a single red rose under the windscreen of each of our vehicles. And wow. uh, I was just taken away with this. And uh, various places around this car park were, were soldiers, just ordinary soldiers. And I just felt the need to thank them personally. And I just wandered off and started shaking hands with all these little soldiers who were... Uh, around the car park I felt the need to do it and when I did it I was very very happy that the senior officers and ministry of the interior who were our patrons at that time looked at me in a most peculiar way which is how I've been seen since then I think really in the media, but, uh, I've got used to it now eventually I, I, I decided that uh, I would go back and do a long-term project although the initial idea was that I'd go over for two years, get the project up and running, and then 
then come back. So in the beginning in 92, I retired from the police and drove over to Romania uh, with a small group of volunteers to start off. The Ministry of the Interior had given us two small apartment blocks. The idea was to renovate both those blocks and to start bringing children from the, this institution Platarest and make social homes. So each uh, block had five floors separated by a staircase in the middle. So we, we would have five social housing units on one side, same on the other side, and do that on both blocks. So we would have up to five children on each landing. So it's quite a big project. It would cover quite a lot of the children. And what we would do is employ Romanian couples as social parents. So it would be like long-term fostering. And it was very innovative. I don't know where I got the idea from, but it just seemed to me a very good idea to, to employ two people as a couple uh, as, mm. and act as parents of foster care. But when we actually arrived, there were still residents living in both these blocks. They hadn't been emptied yet. So, oh dear, what are we going to do? We've got lorries coming full of equipment and everything else. But it took... I'm just picturing it. So I'm, if, I'm, if I'm living in this place... And suddenly this, this whole project arrives to transform my apartment block mm-hmm. into, into I don't know what, but it's a, it's a whole bunch of foreigners who have come on in to take over my building. Absolutely right. So fortunately, uh, the advance group wasn't very, very big. So I think it was probably about a dozen of us. Each block had a room which was about three metres by four metres. That was the size. And... Opposite the, the entry door, where the windows were, was a T-shaped partition with a kitchen on one side and a toilet and a shower on the other side, open without doors. And it was called Class C housing. And it was four single people uh, who were working in a train coal mine uh, next to where this, this building was. So the place was quite run down. And, and very, very shabby. I mean, it, it was a huge piece of work to take on. But we went to the local mayor and the Minister of the Interior to try and get them to rehouse these people into better housing. Because many of the people who were living there had since got married and got girlfriends, started families, and they were all living in these little square or mm. rectangular small rooms. So we wanted to try and speed up their removal to a much more modern block which is what what was agreed right at the beginning. So, and that was advancing so slowly. In the end, we had to move it on. And I thought the best thing we we could do was to try and convince the local mayor that the BBC was actually covering this story and wanted to know why there were all these delays. So we had quite a lot of aid in those days, including suits and so on. So we all dressed up. And we managed to scrounge some microphones, uh, so we looked quite professional. Somebody had a one of the old uh, cases with a recording thing with the, the tape inside. And off we went, made an appointment to see the mayor, and some of them pretended to be BBC reporters. And we then interviewed the mayor, who was obviously quite, quite delighted to be interviewed by the BBC, of course, uh, but very, very worried and concerned when he was started to be asked questions about why these people were still living in squalor in these blocks and whatever and whatever. Believe it or not, within three days, we managed to get all these people out wow. and into some really, really <laughs> nice accommodation. It was quite extraordinary, <laughs> the change. Um, but then, I mean, then uh, the area started to go downhill very, very quickly and the, the local mayor had invited all the Roma groups in, in uh, Bucharest into these apartment blocks. There were seven of them identical. We had to to occupy the, the ones that are surrounding us if they worked for the council. So if they worked for the local authority, he would give them an apartment free. Well, I've just described what these apartments are like. Now you yeah. have Roma families moving in. So the area went downhill very quickly. and Nobody would go there. I mean, it was just a ghetto. And I found myself now living in this ghetto, and I lived there for six years, eventually building this project in the midst of this very, very deprived area. I've been asked many, many times, what on earth did I think I was doing? (laughs) Fortunately, I never gave it much thought, because uh, if I had it done, then I would have gotten out quite quickly, I think. 
I mean, I did not think of myself at that time in any way as as being unusual for living there with this project that I was trying to build up. I mean, the, the local Roma people accepted me. I mean, uh, they were more than happy to invite us to to their weddings, their funerals, their baptisms. We were very much part of the community in which we were living. And I never saw myself as a novelty, absolutely no way. Um, and I settled there and started refurbishing these, these blocks. That's where I got the nickname, of course, the crazy Englishman. <laughs> Chase you around. But to be honest, I mean, I, I remember a few things. I mean, I came to visit you, I, I think twice when I was there once, once in winter, one in summer. And I remember, I mean, these were, these were concrete shells um, that, you were, that you were doing up. And I remember some major problems with sewage. You were, I think, the word grit. I mean, if, when I first heard the word grit, it was, it was you that kind of came to mind, this determination to keep on pushing through. And, and amidst these extraordinary circumstances, you were able to provide, adapt and provide real support and aid in the form of, I mean, there was a computer centre for people there that you were building out, there was daycare that people were coming on in, there was, there was a lot of projects that you managed to kind of keep moving as you, as you carried on mm. moving through these mm. buildings and, and, uh, and consequently I mean, built up extraordinary respect from, from that local community and, and built a reputation that went way beyond that crazy Englishman. But it didn't last. And no. Mm. It meant that that led you to a point where I imagine you had to make some extraordinary decisions. And I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit about how you got from, from working in this ghetto to now running you know, this organisation which has garnered so much respect, not just in, the, in Romania um, and in the UK where your roots are, but worldwide for the level of care and, and support and the impact that it makes. Yeah, I mean, we, we were finding it very, very difficult to, to actually move the project on in a legal sense. So we had to have papers, we had to have authorizations, and every piece of paper had to have a stamp. So the authorities wanted us to have stamps, we didn't have any stamps. The one thing I learned from my previous trip to Romania was how resourceful Romanians were. So if they needed to do something, they would find a way somehow of actually doing it, no matter what the obstacles were. And I think that kind of rubbed off on me. So, I mean, I just got a volunteer who was coming over to buy a set of John Bull stamps and whatever. And we used those in Romania and they were more than happy. I mean, when I first drove into Romania, uh, crossing the border for the first time, they wanted an itinerary of everything that was on the vehicle, including a stamp. Well, we didn't have a stamp. So I got a 10p coin out of my pocket, put that underneath the piece of paper with my biro, started rubbing the biro across this coin until I had this stamp. And I gave it to them and they must have been really impressed because the Queen's head was there and we went straight <laughs> through customs. So there's ways of, there's, there are ways around these things. Um, but here we were in a difficult situation in the sense of, we then found out the blocks that we occupied, in fact, the seven blocks did not exist. They were demolished in 1988. And so therefore, we couldn't get any official papers. We couldn't officially have any electricity or water or any of the amenities. So, I mean, clearly they did exist as you saw for yourself, but I mean, <laughs> on, on paper, they didn't exist. And as a result, because on paper officially they didn't exist, Nobody would grant any permits at all for these these blocks. So we wow. were stuck, stuck there. Also trying to register the organisation in, uh, in Romania proved very, very difficult. We were faced with many demands for corrupt payments. I mean, I, I, despite my former background being in the police, there was no way I was going to pay any corrupt payments to these officials to get get my, my permissions, my stamps. And I think that the main reason behind that was because people were very generous and had given uh, the organization a great deal of money, uh, their own money and, and the companies have also supported us. And I just could not bring myself to give that money to some person who was quite corrupt. So right from the beginning, I said, no, I wasn't going to do it. 
it delayed the project by many, many years. So there's no doubt about that. But so there were all these hurdles. Plus the, the UK end of the, the project kind of collapsed. It wasn't going very well. I was stuck in this, this ghetto with really not much hope for anything coming out of the project whatsoever. So for me, I had um, a few months of wallowing in self-pity and eventually a group of uh, British friends contacted me and asked them, me to meet them in, um, in a local hotel in the centre. And when I turned up, they gave me an air, air ticket to go back home for the following morning. And they said, effectively, you finished here, go back to the UK and get a life. I can remember walking back to my ghetto, I think probably sobbing would be the right word. Uh, but in the morning I woke up and I thought, hmm, I'm not going back. And I searched through some of the aid boxes that I had still in the store, found myself some clothes, decent clothes, a suit, shirts and so on, and thought, right, I'm going to go out there and raise money and support for this project. And so I did, and uh, I started knocking on companies' doors and they were generous and very supportive. And then that was it. That was another chapter in my life opened up. Um, and as you said, I mean, we have many projects, successful projects there, residential school for profoundly disabled children, computer training center for adults with physical disability so that they could go to work, not back to work, but go to work, a halfway house for post-institutionalized young people leaving the care system, and the socio-medical center for the 300 Roma families that were living in the area at that time. And then in the beginning of 1997, the mayor for Bucharest asked me to open the country's first night shelter for older homeless men. Uh, in the centre, the first homeless shelter, I guess, since between the two world wars. And I said no. And I said no, because I had absolutely no experience of working with people who were homeless. Um, I saw plenty of homeless people in, in on the streets in, in Bucharest, but I'd never met a homeless person as such. And... Besides which, Medicine Sans Frontier were working in Bucharest at that time and they had projects for homeless people. They had a soup kitchen. They didn't have a shelter, but they, they had uh, outreach services, if you like. Um, and he kept insisting and eventually persuaded me that he would give me a building, a separate building for uh, to house this night shelter. So I said, OK, give me two weeks and I'll come back to you and let you know. And I thought, what on earth am I going to do? Uh, Google was still in its infancy, so it was hardly like I could Google what's a bike shelter and then do something about it. I mean, there was just no information at all on it. And I thought, what am I going to do? I went to uh, Medicine Sans Frontier, uh, and they weren't really very helpful. Um, and I wanted to do things a little bit different. I just didn't want to give emergency shelter. I wanted to do a bit more than that, so they had nothing for that. Um, but I thought, well, actually, I know some people who have a lot of experience with this. And together with my Romanian assistant, I started talking to homeless people in and around the Garadanul railway station and in various parks. And over the course of a few days, we managed to get 20 of them who turned up regularly. So we provided the coffee and the cigarettes and whatever. And we sat them down and started talking about this project, which was going to be a night shelter. And eventually I got around to saying, okay, so tell me what a night shelter is. And they looked at me as if I'd come from Mars and said, but you, you're the foreigner, you're the expert, you tell us what we need. No, no, no. And I convinced them that because of their lived experience of their homeless situation, they were, in a, they were experts in their own field. They knew exactly what the, what a night shelter was because all they wanted to do, all they had to do was say, these are what our needs are. And we managed to get them to think that way. And they took over the project. Uh, we, we moved into this former fruit and vegetable shop. And when I say we, it was them as well. 
And we started taking off, cleaning it up because it was full of dead animals. It had been there for donkey's years without any work on it. Refurbished all of it, repainted it. I mean, it was just an, an extraordinary period of time. They even went out and found furniture for it as well. Um, and that was it. So we kind of all moved in. We invited the mayor and some various other dignitaries to come along on the opening night. And uh, at 8 p.m. we were all there. The place was immaculate. In Romania, we used the term beneficiary, uh, which is a very nice and polite terminology in, in Romania. And I use that terminology now. In the other parts of Europe, they're clients. Uh, the other people refer to people as residents. We stayed with the word beneficiaries because my staff team actually turned out to me and said, but we're beneficiaries as well. We get a salary, we get this and that and the other. Yeah, that's a fair point. I like that. Okay. <laughs> beneficiaries from now on. So when I refer to beneficiaries, that's why. And they said, uh, and the mayor said, so, okay, so we're the staff members. So I said, uh, the guy over there and the guy over there, uh, Romeo and Petre, they're the, the, the supervisors, but they're homeless people. Well, who better to ask to look after homeless people than people who've got experience of being homeless? It's a brilliant idea, no? And he just looked at me and said, you're crazy. Because everything will be stolen in the morning. You will have nothing left here. Because I'd actually said, it's their shelter. They're in charge. It's their place. All I do is pay the bills and help them get back on their feet. But they manage the whole thing. That's it. And he said, everything will be stolen. I came back at 10 o'clock in the morning. Sorry, at 8 o'clock the following morning. And the place was immaculate. They had had breakfast. They had washed up. Uh, beds were made. It was perfect. I couldn't have wanted for anything better. And that was it. That was Romania's first night shelter up and running since between the two world wars. And it was run by a bunch of guys who were experiencing homelessness. And it was wow. hugely successful. There's so much to unpack there. I think the biggest thing for me from looking at the contrast between those two projects is, is one is, you know, you were really pushing a boulder uphill and that hill seemed to get steeper and steeper and, you know, constant setbacks versus this project where suddenly it's happened. I mean, it's resourced, it's there, it's up and running and, and it's staffed and everybody's engaged and it's, and it's, um, and, and they've got full ownership of that project. And I think it touches on things like, um, you know, that whole classic white saviour syndrome, which is uh, you know, being well talked about. In fact, we've talked about it here on on, um, on Beeline as well with Josevi. Um, this idea of you know we've got to come on in and fix stuff. Um, you know, and you're and that's almost expect, expected, right? You're the, you're the foreigner, you're the expert. You must know what's going on. Um, and I, I imagine um, that during those early stages of trying to get this project up and running. And frankly, somebody needed to step in and, and help and support when we look back to those early days in the, in the orphanage with the irrecuperables and to this point where the, this project, there's these expectations to fulfill because this is the way that things are done, right? So I'm, tr I'm curious about that shift in mindset that moved you from that place of, I need to own this and drive it through myself and control it to that point where you're now absolutely surrendering ownership and control of that project to the very beneficiaries that you're there to help. Yeah. When I was a young lad, uh, I went to a secondary modern school in Morden, which is where my family were living at the time. And uh, I'd been raised in uh, Nairobi, Kenya. And so as a child over there, I, I lived in paradise. It was an amazing experience but I found myself being sent to boarding school it wasn't a pleasant experience and I kind of dropped out of the education side of it and had a quite a miserable few years at the age of 13 my parents returned to the UK and my mother tried to find me a place in a, a local school and because of my educational record not many were prepared to, to take me in except for this headmaster called Hugh Morris a big Welsh bear of a man and he convinced my mother, if she were to do voluntary work, then he would accept me as a pupil. And I can remember my first day at school, it was after lunch, and 
the, the lesson was art, and I loved art. Art and geography, my favorite subjects. There I was, and he walked into the middle of the, this classroom, looked around, saw me, and said, Tilling, in my office now. And I thought, dear oh, dog, crikey. what on earth is happening here? <laughs> it's my first day at school, and I'm already in trouble, you know? I, I was no stranger to the cane uh, and whatever back in, in my school days. But anyway, off I went to his office. And he sat me down and he said, look, I want you to use the telephone, dial T-I-M in those days, the speaking clock. Find out what the correct time was. And go around all the classrooms in the school and, set, and make sure that the clock is telling the, the correct time. I walked out of there and walked home a million miles tall because for the first time, somebody was asking me to do something which I was responsible for and had given over... The, that responsibility to me, he'd given me a responsibility. And that was huge for me back in those days. I ended up being head boy, joining the police uh, and whatever. So, I mean, he turned my life around. There's no doubt about that at all. So it's always been in the back of And it, I'd never thought about it until that night shelter days, those night shelter days when I thought, give people responsibility. They, all re they will react to it in a very positive way. Let them take the ownership, which is how I started to do it with the with the night shelter. But it spread on beyond that. And um, when we st really started going, I mean, at the end of the day, I did not want just to provide emergency night shelter. I wanted to get these guys or help them get back on their feet and get back into normal life, for want of a better expression. So I started to employ social workers. But social workers who'd come directly out of university, none that had ever worked before, because the only place to work as a social worker before then was in the state institutions. Right. And I did, did not want them coming to me with a set way of thinking. So right. I took them straight from university. I didn't say forget all your university training. I said it's there and it's, it's great for, for background and everything else. But I want you to ask everybody that you're working with what they need, and then I want you to meet those needs. But, I mean, they need this, they need that, and we can't give it to them. Well, we may not be able to provide it, but your job as a social worker is to get out there and find the, the ways to meet their needs. And they said, but we're social workers. Yes, exactly, you're social workers. But uh, we have to make sure that people are going to receive their financial benefits and things like that. Uh, not here, you know, we do things differently here. And it took a long while for them to kind of get into it. But I started doing, I started showing them how I would approach the situation with guys. So I'd sit there and ask these guys what their needs were. And then together we'd look at, okay, so how are we going to do this and uh, work that out? And then, okay, off they go and, and find it. So they're kind of getting the idea and it was working quite well. And then I came across a book and it hadn't been published it was being put together by you it's called <laughs> the storm process and i kind of went through this you were very kind enough to ask me to read through it and give you any any thoughts i had and uh i can remember this description of trying to plan various stages so you'd have a clear goal and you'd have objectives in which to achieve that goal and you'd have activities obtaining these objectives, completing these objectives, and then ultimately this goal. And this little arrow flying and this beautiful R straight into the target. Remember that quite well. And uh, I thought, hmm, that sounds like a very good idea. It's uh, It's got a methodology. Um, we can adapt that to what we're doing in Asiana. So I've sat down with my social workers and said, okay, this is where we're going to do it. We're going to call it a project for life. So it's their, their project, it's their life. And so we sat down and asked them, okay, where do you want to be when you leave Castellana? So uh, we work now mainly with families. And uh, mum would say, okay, well, we want to be in our, our own apartment. Okay. Out comes a star, stuck it up on the wall. Okay. There's where you want to be. How are you going to get there? And we sat down and just gently talks through okay so what do you need to do and we slowly build this thing up but what we included in this 
plan for life as well as the goal, the objectives and the activities. It was the resources as well that were needed. And once they got the idea that, hey, hold on, I can't just sit here and write a CV because I have no idea what, what it is I want to do. And I have no idea uh, what to say. So we then started doing workshops. We do a lot of workshop trainings now. And one of them is how to write a CV. So we get people, different HR uh, professionals from different companies who come in, do a bit of career guidance with them, help them with CVs, help them job interview techniques. So we fit all these things in. We provide a huge amount of resources now that they can tap into and, and make their own. I mean, most of our, our mums have come from disorganised families themselves. So when it comes to bringing out their children, they have very little idea other than uh, replicating how they were brought up as children themselves. So we bring in parenting professionals to come in and talk about parenting. And, and it's brilliant. The key things we start off with, uh, children may be young, but they're not stupid. It took you this long to realise that. I feel like I'm falling short. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, yeah you, were, you were good to practice on anyway. <laughs> but, uh, but no, I mean, it, it, and so, so all these skills were coming into play as well. And we got given this big building by the mayor for Bucharest. Obviously impressed with the other night shelter. He said, okay, here's another big building. And it was a huge space. It was a supermarket. And he said, okay, so I want you to do uh, a night shelter. But I think because we're getting a lot of women now who are becoming homeless as well. I want you to do a project for both. Wow. Okay. Um, what am I going to do here now? First thing I have to do is build a wall down the middle. Women on one side, men on the other. Okay. Shared toilets. What are we going to do? Okay. Mm. Until we build something here and the toilet block and whatever and whatever, they're going to be shared as well. We've got all these beds. In the end, there were 60-odd people sleeping uh, in this, this shelter and the same methodology. So this belongs to you. You're responsible for keeping it clean. Everything else will pay the bills. We'll provide the social care and everything else. But you run the place. It's yours. Don't miss the second instalment of Ian's interview, which concludes next week. If you're interested to know more or could do with a reminder about today's episode or any of the other episodes in this series of Beeline, I've collated some notes, links and resources for you to explore and download at www.consultthehive.com forward slash Beeline. The Hive Change Consultancy provides radically effective training, coaching and facilitation that enables a dynamic shift in leaders, sales teams and entire organisational cultures. Get in touch today for an informal chat with one of our team. My name's Gemma Aston and you've been listening to Beeline. Lead the way. Beeline.